Hello, I'm Kyle Caldwell, and this is On The Money, a weekly look at how to get the best out of your savings and investments. In this episode, Nina Kelly speaks to Robin Powell and Jonathan Pollo, authors of How to Fund the Life You Want. One of the topics that crops up in the interview is the active versus passive fund debate. The authors make the point that for the vast majority of people, they'd be better saved by simply buying passive funds. Now, my view on this is that it depends on what type of investor you are. If you don't have the time or dedication to research funds and monitor your holdings, then passive funds, they are a great option. They offer investors cheap, simple and effective exposure to global stock markets. Now, one of the core arguments for owning passive funds is that most fund managers cannot consistently identify the shares that are going to do well. The vast majority of fund managers do struggle to consistently outperform. But in defense of active fund managers, there are some out there who over various market cycles have proved their worth by consistently gaining an edge over both the index and active fund manager rivals. But as mentioned, the trouble is there are far more ones out there that do not consistently outperform than gems. So it does make finding a winner an uphill task. In my view, I think it makes sense for if you're committed and you're willing to do the research and you're willing to review your portfolio a couple of times a year, my approach would be to mix and match between the two styles. And indeed, that's what that's what I do with my own personal investments. I invest in both active and passive. So my ISA is mainly invested in investment trusts and my pension is mostly in passive. So with my pension, over a 40-year time period, I'm happy to own the world by investing in global shares passively. Whereas with my ISA, I prefer to have a bit more spice. I like, I like the fact that I can have more exposure to technology shares and emerging markets via active funds. So Nina, before we get to your interview, could you tell us a bit more about Robin and Jonathan and the book that they've co-authored? So... Robin Powell is a journalist and founder of the evidence-based investor website, and the co-author Jonathan Hollow is formerly of the government's money and pension service. How to Fund the Life You Want is very much a practical self-help guide to those essential subjects matter to all of us, such as investments and pensions, and it's very much designed to help readers feel confident in managing their money. The book is underpinned by six core rules for investors to operate by, and it comes with a workbook for readers to download and fill in so they can fully understand their own financial position. I started by asking Robin to explain his stance on active and passive investing, and whether he and Jonathan invest solely in passive investments themselves. I'd argue that the vast majority of investors should be investing uh, uh, purely, uh, or at least mainly, uh, in passive funds. And the reason simply is this. As an investor, you know, you want to maximise the chances of a successful outcome. Uh, And the evidence consistently shows that only a tiny proportion of active funds, indeed, if any at all, actually beat the relevant benchmark over the very long term. And by the long term, I mean the kind of terms that we invest for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Um, Only a tiny number, if any, uh, outperform on a cost and risk adjusted basis. Almost all of them underperform their benchmark. So if you invest in an active fund, there is, yes, a very slight chance that you will beat the benchmark. But the overwhelming probability is that the benchmark will beat you. Uh, And there's a danger also of substantial outperformance 
Why is that? Because beating the benchmark requires taking more risk. And the more risk you take, the bigger the chances of something going wrong. And we saw that, of course, uh, with Neil Woodford. He was taking all sorts of extraordinary risks with investors' money. In a nutshell, Index funds are cheap and the cost is so, so, so important. The less you pay to invest, the more you keep for yourself. Secondly, they're simple and generally simplicity, as we explain in the book, trumps complexity. And finally, they're transparent. You know exactly what you're getting with an index fund. And just to chip in from my point of view, Jonathan, um, I only invest in passive funds as well. I put my money where my mouth is. I do have um, 1% of my assets in gold, which I think is an interesting hedge against inflation. But other than that, it's all passive. You suggest that most savers and investors should simplify their focus to three asset classes, shares, bonds and cash. Could you explain why you think the alternatives, which include property, private equity and infrastructure, should be avoided by most people? Yes. I mean, we tried to write a book that would work for most people most of the time. And we set out a, a general philosophy, therefore, of what it makes sense for most people to invest in, in chapter six of the book, take the right risks. And we said, you need assets that are going to be fairly straightforward for you to invest in. There needs to be long term evidence of a return that is above inflation. You need to be able to buy and sell them easily you know, what's referred to in the jargon as, as liquidity, the fees need to be reasonable as well. And we set out in that chapter, really the heart of a book, a table of different assets that people might be interested in, ranked from high to low returns over above and above inflation with the longest term records we could find. And what we found is that shares in companies, if they're diversified, wide range of shares bought, in the long term, they've returned 5.4% above inflation. And, and every other asset class we found does worse. So that's the kind of general principles. If I then look at property, infrastructure, and private equity briefly, I mean, property is quite complicated because there's property you live in, you might buy additional investment properties or you might invest in a property fund. I mean, taking each of those in turn, if you live in it, there's a tension between what you want to live in and what you need to live on. You can't easily sell off bits of your property or certainly it's very hard to buy more of the same property. If you own additional buy-to-let properties individually, You've got your risk concentrated in a very few small places. Again, you have to buy and sell them in whole units. And I think people tend to underestimate the cost of their own work, agent fees, etc. And as you point out in the book, you have the problem with potentially difficult tenants, which is a headache for a lot of people. That's right. People kind of discount the sort of stress involved in that. Whereas, you know, compared to buying an equity fund, you buy it and forget about it. You could, of course, buy properties through a fund. But what we found was there was a combination of relatively high fees and relatively poor long-term returns. Infrastructure, 
I think is a really interesting area because with climate transition, there is going to need to be a lot of infrastructure investment. It will probably be good for all of us if large pension funds manage to find the right balance between sustainability, liquidity and reliable returns. But we haven't yet found a really compelling retail offer. There may be one that you can can somebody can draw to our attention. And then finally, private equity. We just don't think this is easy for retail investors to navigate and evaluate. And it's it's a sort of hypersteroid version of all the problems that Robin identified with active investing. It's really hard to pick winners. And actually, there's poor transparency about the, the data about private equity. So it might be right for some people, but we don't think it's good for kind of every man or every woman who we've written this book for. Yeah, like like you say, I guess that most people, but there are some people who would seek to access some of the kind of high growth potential that these early stage companies offer. And but yeah, the the risk is the risk is there. And, and what what you, what we need to say about that as well, Nina, is that actually um, the the data shows that all, for all this talk about the you know the huge upside potential of of private equity, actually private equity can, returns compared with uh, public equity returns uh, over the last ten years have really been very very similar. You know, so so you you're you're getting a kind of potentially a similar sort of return. Um, and yet you all have all the downsides as well of private equity that Jonathan has mentioned, the sort of lack of transparency um, and uh, the illiquidity and so on. I guess for some investors who are happy with a higher level of risk, they are hoping to find those that the fund managers are going to find the needles in the haystack and they're going to have, yeah, fantastic performance, but yeah, much higher risk for them. Um, As you point out in the book, investors are unnerved by big stock market falls, such as what happened following the emergence of COVID-19. But you suggest that no one should stop investing or reduce the amount they invest each month just because the markets have fallen sharply. Could you explain why? Well, I I don't want to sound too flippant here, Nina, but I think we all need to chill out a bit about uh, stock market falls. (laughs) I mean, crashes and corrections are part and parcel uh, of of equity investing. I mean, they they come with the territory. And in fact, more than that, if you think about it, that volatility, if you like, is the very reason why, as equity investors, we can expect a premium uh, on our uh, on our uh, investments compared, say, to cash or to bonds. So you've got to really um, think of risk and volatility as two completely different things. What is risk with equity investing? Well, I suppose risk is is losing all of your money, you know, and it does happen. It happened in Russia in 1917. Um, it later happened in China. Uh, uh, but actually losing all of your money on equities Yes, we could have an asteroid strike. We could have a nuclear war, uh, and clearly, both of those events presumably would massively dent equity prices. But you, you know, if you're investing for the long term, realistically, you are not going to lose all of your money. But you are going to see that volatility, that up and down, all the time. 
for however long you invest for. Um, so you certainly shouldn't stop investing after markets have fallen. If anything, you should actually invest more. I mean, think about it. It's rather like the sales, you know, after Christmas. Uh, I suppose it doesn't happen quite so much anymore. But, but you know, we, we rush into the shops on Boxing Day to get the bargains that we could have got, that we really wanted to get before Christmas, but because prices were high, we couldn't. That's exactly what happens with the stock market when there's a crash or correction. And yet we do the complete opposite. We run away from the shop. We, we want to sell all our um, all our sh shares and so on. So we get it completely the wrong way around. And in the book, we explain various techniques uh, to help you focus on the long term. And one of them is the importance of drip feeding. Uh, there's something, again, we explain in the book called pound cost averaging. Basically, when you are putting in a set amount every month without even thinking about it, you are actually buying into shares at lower prices as the markets go down. And, and one final thing, develop a plan you can stick to. If you've got a good investment plan, you shouldn't panic when when markets go down. Uh, and we've actually got a downloadable workbook that accompanies our book to help you develop just that kind of plan. I, when COVID happened, I personally chose just not to look and I just carried on regularly investing every month. And I thought, I know it's going to take a hit. I just won't look and it will recover in time. And it's just having that long term vision, isn't it? Exactly right. Don't look. It's a very good philosophy. Could you run through which fees investors need to be aware of? So we, we, we say there's kind of four main categories and we use this supermarket analogy to explain them, but it's a rather a strange supermarket. So you've got the platform fee. That's the fee that allows you to trade in shares or bonds. Um, and we say it's a bit like paying for entry to a supermarket, which, of course, none of us do these days. Um, you'd certainly want to be sure that a supermarket has a wide range of goods if they were charging you for entry. Then you've got the second one is the fund annual management charge. So if you buy an index fund, it will have an annual charge that is a percentage of the, um, the amount you own in it. And we say it's a bit like the cost of buying a product in the supermarket, but you pay it every year. Um, the third one is transaction fees. So when you buy and sell your investments, you'll pay a relatively small fee per transaction. And we say it's a bit like paying a credit card fee when you pay for your product in the supermarket. Then the final one, and a very significant one, is an advisor, financial advisor, or money management money manager fee. So if you're getting somebody to manage all this, they're going to be wanting their own fee as well as paying on your behalf the other three fees that we've mentioned. So we say it's a bit like having a personal shopper um, doing your supermarket shopping for you in this peculiar supermarket. So that's the four categories. Now, if we think about the actual fee levels, one of them we say you really shouldn't worry about too much, and that's transaction fees. Why? Because we recommend you you buy and sell very infrequently. Just with your philosophy, Nina, don't look, don't fiddle, don't fidget. Buy and hold, so you shouldn't have to worry too much about the impact of transaction fees. With the other fees... 
the combination of the platform fee and the fund annual management charge, we say a really good target to aim for. You might not achieve it, but to aim for is a third of 1% of the money that's being um, held in those. That's a stringent goal, but we really emphasize the importance of lowering fees. And then if you do have a financial advisor managing all this, the average cost that they will charge is 0.8, so eight-tenths of 1% of the the money that they manage. So we say if you're paying your financial advisor more than the average, more than 0.8%, you need to think really hard about what you're getting for that and whether you're getting extra added value. Um, And, of course, the other thing that we emphasize in the book is for some people, it will be perfectly fine and perfectly right for them to manage their pension investments and their investments themselves. And they, they, they will only need a financial advisor for specific life events or to set up an initial plan. Um, and if they can do that, they can cut out a really large chunk of ongoing fees. And that was an important reason why we wrote the book. Absolutely. It's very much designed to give people confidence, isn't it, to be able to manage their money. If you if you learn enough, you can hopefully do a lot of it yourself. Yes. And what we say in the book is that the, the what you the types of things you should invest in are quite simple. And the way you should manage them is is quite simple. The real challenge is actually your own behaviour your own reactions to the ups and downs of markets and the ups and downs of life. And so a really important consideration about whether you need a financial advisor to do all this for you, we we describe them as potentially a a financial bodyguard. Do you need a financial bodyguard? If you do, fine. If you don't, great. But the fundamental stuff that you need to do is not nearly as complicated as everybody imagines. Yes, and I think people often forget about fees because people often have their focus on the returns when fees can actually, they have an impact and people do need to take that into consideration. Um, You warn investors against investing pitfalls of various different things, including sophisticated scams and not to fall for investment themes. Could you expand on what you mean by investment themes? Yes, yeah, so we, ha- we have this chapter in the book, chapter five, avoid charlatans and sharks. Actually, investment themes, I wouldn't say these are scams so much as, I don't know, I'd probably describe them more like sort of glittery, shiny objects that kind of distract us from from what we really should be doing. Um, As we explain in the book, the best thing that we can all be doing is primarily investing in a fairly, let's face it, dull, uh, globally diversified, low-cost tracker fund, tracking equities all around the world. But of course, we're human, aren't we? And we are very susceptible to a good story. And investment themes always make good stories, Um, but they don't make good investments. Usually they make bad investments. I'll give you a really classic example from the 19th century in the 1860s. You know, the thing to do was to buy railway stocks because railways were transforming 
um, life and uh, industry in the UK. Um, and uh, everyone was sort of jumping on board that bandwagon, if you like. But almost all investors lost money. That's because most of the railway companies actually went bust. And the same thing happened uh, with uh, cars uh, in the sort of 1920s, for example. Uh, I'm speaking to you from from the West Midlands here. There's a city down the road, uh, Coventry, which uh, used to have more than 100 car companies. But all but a handful of those went belly up. So it's another example of how you can be quite right and say, yes, Railways are going to transform the way we live and work. Cars are going to do the same thing. But yet, from an investment point of view, be completely wrong because the benefits accrue to consumers and not just to investors. So, for example, when you pick up the Sunday papers and you read a compelling article there about say, I don't know, the aging population in the UK and uh, the fact that garden centres, for example, and health companies and care home firms are going to be uh, doing a lot of business and being very successful in the years ahead. Well, people have been saying that for them, writing that stuff for the last 20 or 30 years. Um, you know, you are far too late to the table. By the time an investment theme becomes a theme, it has already been, if you like, um, that the, the the benefits of that theme have already already been incorporated into prices, and you're too late. So steer clear uh, of scheme of uh, in investment themes. Again, it's like what you say in the book. It's about being diversified, isn't it, and not clinging to one particular trend. Um, pensions can be complicated, to put it mildly, and the book does a good job of explaining subjects such as drawdown for defined contribution pensions or workplace pensions. While everyone's situation is unique, could you each share your number one pension tip or suggestion for listeners? Well, I'll, I'll go first with that. I mean, we're <laughs> we're not very tips based. We're we're very evidence based, um, and in our table of asset classes at the heart of the book. One of the asset classes that is near the top of that table for returns above inflation is what is called small cap equities. And I, I think this is a great thing to know. Um, the evidence that we found is since 1972, that asset class has returned 9.2% above inflation. That is a United States figure, so you'd have to take a slightly different view for global or, or British small cap, but the, the, they are generally similar. And why, why does that seem to, to work? Well, if you think about it, what you're doing with small cap is you're, you're investing in small companies. You're investing in a very, very large number of small companies, preferably all over the world rather than just in the United States or in Britain. And if you think about it, Small companies um, have more room to grow. They're at the beginning of their life cycle. They're likely, some of them, to expand and find huge customer bases. Google was once a very small company. So loads of them fail and a few of them become massive successes. Now, if you compare that with other asset classes like large companies, you know, large companies have a mature customer base. They, they may produce more reliable returns, they're less likely to go out of business, but they're also very, very well priced. 
So I've invested in small caps for a long time as an asset class. I think the evidence supports it as as an important part of your mix. That's me. Um, What's yours, Robin? My number one tip would be to make as few decisions as possible. Um, you know, there's this fascinating area of of uh, psychology called behavioural finance, and and you know uh, we, we explain a little bit about it in the book, but but, but please do read more about it because it's it's really interesting and extremely relevant. Because as human beings, we're not hired hardwired to make sensible investment decisions. The more decisions we make, the worse our outcomes are. So what's the answer? The answer is to automate everything and i mean everything so just decide um right my level of risk i'm gonna be 70 percent equities and the other 30 percent i'm gonna put into safe cash or uh, not quite so safe but still fairly safe bonds for example and just stick with it and and um if you think about it as markets go up and down you know the the uh, the equity and the bond or cash components of your portfolio will go up and down as well but you can actually um automatically rebalance and and in very very often it's just a case of ticking a box uh, on a website you know just 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 go for it because it's just a really sensible thing you can do which takes uh, decisions out of your hands, if you like, and very, very definitely automate how much you're putting into your pension every month and how much you're putting into your cash savings every month, because it's important to have cash savings as well. So keep it simple is, yeah, the absolute best advice. Um, as the end of the tax year approaches, people's thoughts will turn to ISAs. Do you have any ISA tips for our investors? Generally speaking, the best way to invest is via a broad, uh, globally diversified, low-cost index tracker, which gives you exposure to every sector or every major sector of the economy and every geographical region of the world. You know, all known information about how much a particular stock or sector is worth is already baked into the price. No one can predict the future. The best thing to do is just to avoid all these kind of faddish funds. Um, we've got <laughs> we've got a lot of people now, for example, talking about Japan, and Japan is the is the place to put your money in. Because at long last, Japan has just started to recover in terms of uh, it, its sort of equity market and so on. Um, Japan has been a complete write-off for the last 22 years, frankly. Uh, and people was, have been saying for the last 22 years, get into Japan. No, don't jump on a particular bandwagon. Diversify, simplify, keep costs low. Thank you for listening to this episode of On The Money. If you enjoyed it, please follow the show in your podcast app and tell a friend about it. And if you get a chance, leave us a review or a rating in your podcast app too. You can join the conversation, ask questions, and tell us what you want us to talk about via email, which is on otn at ii.co.uk. In the meantime, you can find more information and practical pointers on how to get the most out of your investments on the Interact Investor website, which is ii.co.uk. See you next week.